This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Conference 2018, held at Faith Builders from October 12 to 14. Well, I'm very happy to be here with you. I always look forward to an opportunity to come to Faith Builders, mainly because my daughter lives up here. But I also like coming for other reasons, too. Um, <clears throat> this week, um, I hope to look at, at three topics, um, peace defined, peace demonstrated, peace deployed. This evening, we'll be looking at peace defined, and here I hope to sketch out for you the uh, theological and spiritual foundations uh, for peace. Tomorrow morning, I am planning to look at the experiences and the testimonies of two uh, World War I conscientious objectors, um, both of whom were from my uh, home area. Um, and of course, uh, I think that's very apropos because, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, our country was involved in a, a large war, uh, uh, the war to end all wars, supposedly. Um, and then on Sunday morning, Lord willing, I want to look at uh, peace deployed, looking at nurturing attitudes and practices of peace for ourselves. And I'm going to leave it to Sheldon to talk about how you really get that accomplished in your classroom. It's been 20 years this year that I left the classroom. I can hardly believe that. But 20 years ago was my last year um, for teaching. And I enjoyed teaching. Um, <clears throat> there have been a few occasions when, when I thought maybe I would get back into it, but that never happened. All right, let's look at peace defined. Uh, I would like us to begin by looking at Christ's peace, love, and reconciliation in Paul's epistles. And we're going to begin at Romans chapter 5. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses, and I'm going to read these verses. I'm going to read them from the New King James Version, which I hope you don't mind, but um, I don't really want to spend a lot of time uh, using a translation which I have to explain to you what peradventure per means. Um, it's not a, a term I use every day. Uh, perhaps works better for me. I don't know if it, how it works for you. Um, all right. Uh, so I'll be reading from the New King James. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, we have also, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit for who, who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than 
having been now been justified by his blood, we, but we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I want you to notice here uh, three words, um, peace, love, reconciliation, okay? And I, the first one that Paul talks about is he said, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, uh, the word that is used here, I understand, and I am not a Greek scholar, so I just uh, take what other people tell me. But the word that I understand is used here, uh, used here in peace, is used throughout the New Testament in the same way. And it's also the word in the Septuagint that the Septuagint used to translate the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom in the Old Covenant did not necessarily mean the absent, only the absent of conflict. It could mean that. Uh, but it meant wholeness, fullness, things as they are meant to be, things that are under God's order. And if things are what they are supposed to be, if there's wholeness, if there's, if there's completeness there, if things are under God's order, then there is shalom. Okay, there is shalom. It's not necessarily the complete opposite of war. You know, we talk about war and peace. Tolstoy wrote a wonderful novel uh, with that title. It was more about war than peace. Um, and uh, the only thing I always had trouble with was keeping all those Russian names straight. <laughs> Who was he talking about at this particular point? Um, but um, it... It can, it, it does have this idea, it has something uh, fuller than just the absence of conflict. In fact, I think as we'll see later on, um, when we talk about, when we talk about peace, the opposite is not conflict, because we are actually engaged in a conflict. We're actually engaged in something we cannot help but be engaged in a conflict. And we'll be talking about the nature of that conflict, what the nature of our weapons are, and so on. But here it does have the idea of being the opposite of enmity, being the opposite of hostility. And he talks here about the fact that we have peace with God. Why do we have peace with God? Well, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so the interesting thing here to note in this particular passage, what does he say? He said, Christ died for us, the ungodly, those who were not like God, those who were God's enemies, he died for us while we were still God's enemies. And this was in God's plan. And this is part of God's provision. And this is how God takes care of evil. He took care of the, the sin. He took care of the evil. He took care of the fact that we were separated from him by Christ offering up himself, becoming a, a sweet and pleasing sacrifice, and 
uh, paying the price of our sin because it was sin as we see if you had gone to looked at Romans in the earlier chapters of Romans it is sin that separated us from God it's sin that made us the objects of God's wrath because the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness so how is that problem taken care of it's taken care of by Christ willing to die for the ungodly, for those who were helpless, who were unable to help themselves, who were not good, who had very little to recommend themselves, but yet God sent Christ who was willing to die for us. And so, um, so the, the, the point I want you to understand from this is that if this is God's way of dealing with evil. If this is God's way of dealing with sin, if this is God's way of dealing with his enemies, okay, that should give us a clue that that's actually how he wants us to operate also. One of the things I have heard over the years, and maybe you have heard this, this thing too, and it's not entirely, uh, it may have a point, but um, I have heard uh, when it talks about Anabaptist and about Mennonites and whatever, we are just like other Christians except for two things. We have two extra things. You know what those two extra things are? They're nonconformity and they're non-resistance. Okay, so we're, take whatever kind of Christian you want, you know, uh, take uh, evangelicalism, we're just evangelicals uh, in funny clothes who don't kill people, all right? Um, and our, you know, if it's fundamentalism, you know, uh, we, we're fundamentalists who wear funny clothes and don't kill people. Well, that misses the point, okay? And the reason why it misses the point is because it misses the fact that our non-resistance, our peace, our understanding of peace, is rooted in how God treats us and what God did for us and how he dealt with evil. And how did he do it? He dealt with evil by Christ coming to this earth, dying for us, paying the price of our sin, rescuing us from Satan's clutches, and infusing us, imparting to us a new life that enables us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live a life which means we are no longer objects of God's wrath. Okay? Now, I... Uh, so, my point that I want to make here is that, that peace is rooted in the atonement. Peace is rooted in the atonement. Peace is rooted in how Jesus procured for us our salvation. And Paul talks about that here. Okay? He talks about justification, which is having a right standing with God, being vindicated by God. But he also talks about this thing called reconciliation. And we're going to see this later on here in a few minutes when he talks about a reconciliation not only between us and God, but between us and each other, men between men. 
um, human beings in between human beings. But the thing that I want us to keep in mind is that, that Jesus is, what he did was an example for how we are to respond, but it's more than an example. Okay, it's more than an example. It's an effective power because by his death, he rescued us by, by paying the price of our salvation. This, I think, is often called the ransom um, understanding of the atonement as opposed to the penal understanding of the atonement. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, an earlier generation, uh, Bishop John L. Stauffer wrote a little tract, a little uh, article about the atonement. And one of the things that, uh, that he uh, made the very strong point about is that Jesus paid not the penalty of our sins, but the price of our sin. And the picture that we have here is that we were sold under sin, we were under Satan's domain, and God rescued us by paying the price of our sin. And by doing that, we could be transferred, as Paul says elsewhere, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And he did it by death, by suffering, and by pouring out himself. And in that, he demonstrates his love toward us. Now, um, Colossians 1, 19-22 says, For to please the Father that in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once were alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. How do we cease to become objects of God's wrath? Classical Protestantism says that we are no longer objects of God's wrath because Christ has paid the penalty you know, it's a forensic thing, so on here. But I'd like you to notice what does Paul say. He says that he has presented you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. When we believe and we put our trust in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, what happens is an ontological change. Something comes to life which had not been there before. And, it, and when that happens, we are, no, we are changed, and we are no longer objects of wrath. And so wrath is, God's wrath is displayed against all unrighteousness. We no longer become objects of God's wrath because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ while we were yet his enemy. This is God's way of dealing with enemies. Then Ephesians 2, 14 to 18, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Peace with each other. Peace with each other. Here we see the creation, uh, not, we see uh, the creation of the peaceable community. 
Now, Paul is talking here in this passage about the enmity or the hostility that has existed between the Jews and between the Gentiles, between those who are not Jews and those who are Jews, between the circumcision and and those. um, And he talks about the Gentiles, they were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is himself our peace. We who, who have made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments, contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to you who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Again, Paul underscores here that Christ is our peace. But it's not only peace between us and God. It's not only restoring that relationship. It's also restoring the relationship with other people. And that is done by calling everybody into this community of believers who have accepted what Jesus has done, who have believed in and have 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 put their trust in that, have had that actual change in their being. And that not only means that we, are, we have a changed relationship with God, but we also have a changed relationship with each other. And, notice, and of course, he's talking here about this great division between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were part of God's people, the Gentiles were not. But now we have one new man. Okay, the terms he uses, one new man, fellow citizens, saints, household of God. We all belong to the same household. (coughs) And whatever division uh, was separating us, uh, and that day was Jew and Gentile. We can think of many other divisions that separate people today. We talk today, there's so much talk about ethnic and racial um, uh, issues and so on. And it's God's intent that all these people be brought into one community, one household, one new man, and that their relationships be peaceful, that they reflect the shalom, the love, and the reconciliation that God has done for us, has made available for us. Now, that takes me to... um, to uh, the next point on Paul, Romans 12, 17 to 21. Love and the justice of God. Paul says, repay no evil for evil, having regard for the good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want this, this, uh, I want you to notice here Paul's instructions to Christians as to how they are to act, how they are to treat people. He says, first of all, don't. He has some don'ts here. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't avenge. Don't be overcome by evil. Okay? Do. Do live peaceably with all men. Overcome evil with good. Now, I want you to notice here what he says. He says, give place to wrath. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord. In the Septuagint and Deuteronomy, this is rendered literally, in the day of vengeance, I will repay. Now, it's interesting to me that when we look at this term avenge and vengeance and so on, in the Greek, from what I understand, it is rooted in the same uh, set of words that we sometimes translate as righteousness, justification, justice, vindication. All right? So it's, uh, it's all uh, rooted in one of those. And one of the things that uh, Paul is telling us here is, Give place to raft does not mean that evil will not be punished. Uh, we know that evil will be punished. It's not our job to pay it or to punish it. That has not been given to us. That is something God holds to himself. And in that great day, in the day of vengeance, in the day of vindication, when the day of when things will be set right and things will be what they want to be, God will do what needs to be done. Everyone will receive their proper coming upance or their, um, the, the, the mercy and the forgiveness that they have availed themselves of. So what Paul is telling us is trust God to do what's just. Have patience. That's why earlier in Romans, I think he's talked about perseverance, patience, uh, and so on. Have patience. Let God take care of the problem. Our responsibility, what he's instructed us to do is, do no evil and do what is good. <coughs> now, I started with Paul here on purpose. Because now I'm going to go look at what Jesus said in the Gospels. And in case you're worried, my, what I had to say about Paul is my longest section. Okay? <laughs> but I started with Paul on purpose. And one of the pur- reasons is that I really do want you to understand that peace is grounded in the atonement. Okay? That's, a, I think, a very important uh, thing to carry with you. If you don't get anything else this week... Get the point, peace is grounded in the atonement. How God dealt with, our, with his enemies is, is an example for us, but not only an example. Just as it released power, just as it, re, as it made possible reconciliation and redemption, we have to believe and trust if we respond in a like way, it will release power, redemption, reconciliation, and 
trusting that God will vindicate us in that great day. All right? So that's one reason. But the other reason is that I am somewhat troubled by this thing I hear going around about red-letter Christians. Is that, you ever hear that? You all enough, read enough blogs to, to come across that one? Anybody hear about red-letter Christians? Okay, all right. Now, I have a great deal of sympathy for people who talk this way because the fact of the matter is, in much of professing Christianity, what Jesus taught and said really doesn't mean much. Or one can come up with nice, clever theological ways to explain why he really didn't mean what he said. Okay? And so some people picking up on that say, well, what we really need to do is look at what Jesus said and give that primary importance. Well, if you're using it simply as a corrective, that's fine. But sometimes what happens is that we create these tiers of canonicity where what Jesus said takes priority over the rest of the New Testament. And I have news for you. That is not what Jesus intended. What Paul and the other apostles said, what we have in the rest of the New Testament, is just as much coming from Jesus as the very words that he spoke here on this earth. Okay? So I started with Paul because I want you to understand that Paul is not saying anything different than what Jesus is. But Paul is also explaining to us some things that we don't have entirely explained in the, in the Gospels about what Jesus accomplished. What was the cosmic thing that was happening? Now, Jesus hints at that. Okay, He hints at that. <clears throat> he says that I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Okay, and he always uses that ransom terminology. He always uses that idea that I'm coming to pay a ransom. I'm coming to rescue people from the power of Satan and from, from destruction and bring them into a new relationship with me. Um, Jesus also um, talks about the fact that when he went out casting out demons, that he saw Satan fall. He also talks about that wonderful little parable in which uh, he says, how can, when they said, well, you, you know, when you cast out demons, you do it by Beelzebub. He says, well, how can Beelzebub cast out demons? How can a house be divided against itself? And he tells this nice little parable about you have to go into a strong man's house and tie the strong man up and then rescue the people who are held captive in that house. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. It's no accident then that John saw in Revelation Satan being bound with a chain for a thousand years. I like to always get a little eschatology in. <laughs> All right. Actually, you can't, you can't have Christianity without eschatology. Uh, because if there's no eschatology, there's no final justice. All right, but let's look at Christ's good news of the peaceful kingdom uh, in the Gospels. First of all, I would like you to know, notice the proclamation of peace. Zechariah, and I'm going to be using mainly uh, Luke here. Uh, Zechariah, uh, in his uh, hymn of praise and his outburst of praise, 
<coughs> after the birth of his son, says in regard to John the Baptist, he was, he's come to prepare the way for the Lord, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, <coughs> to guide our feet into the way of peace into the way of shalom, into the way of wholeness, of completeness, and where God's order is finally and ultimately expressed. Luke 2.14. After Jesus was born and the angels appeared to the shepherds and they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, there are some translations that translate this something along the line, um, um, peace toward men of goodwill. I just think that is really weak. Peace toward men of goodwill? I, th I think that's really a really awful translation. And it's not what Jesus came to do. As Paul tells us, he came preaching peace to those of us who were his enemies. And so, the, the, if, keeping with what Paul says, what Jesus came to do, God, there is going to be peace on earth, the creation of God's order. And it's based on God's goodwill toward us, his good wishes, his good intentions, and his good actions toward us through Jesus Christ. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Christ announces the coming of God's shalom. He says there, when he went into the synagogue and opened up Isaiah's scroll and read from it, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus closes the book and he says, today in your presence, the scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus came to do what Isaiah had prophesied. He came to bring into reality God's shalom to his people. And he calls us, he calls us into this shalom, into this peace, into this orderly community. And in chapter six of Luke we have the Sermon on the Plain in which Jesus, um, and I think one of the things we have to realize looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, um, Jesus, I am sure, wherever he went, he taught the material that's in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain in various settings, various pieces and stuff like that. You know what you guys do. You tell stories, you give things, you tell bits here, you know, there. Jesus was a teacher, Okay, my friend John D. Martin always worries about people have heard all of his stories. And so I said, John, go ahead, tell me again. I said, even N.T. Wright tells all his stories over and over again. You know, it's okay. <laughs> because it's the stories being told and the teachings being told over and over and over again that finally lodge in us, isn't it? All right. And so Jesus here, again, uh, weaves together some of the same teaching we see in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, and it's in the con- but what's interesting here is that where in the Sermon on the Mount he stalks, starts off with blessings, in this Sermon on the Plain he starts off with blessings. But what are they followed by? They're followed by a set of woes. There are people who Jesus is saying to, congratulations, you're in a good situation. And, you know, the kingdom of God is coming. God's order and shalom is coming. I'm going to be gathering together a new people made, made out of every tongue, kindred, and nation who are going to believe and trust in me, whom I've rescued from the clutches of Satan. It's good news for you. But then there are those for whom it's woe. And those are the scribes and the Pharisees, those who are perpetuating injustices, who are trying to use religion to advance that, um, and so on, who are missing the point. And then in the context of that, Jesus says, I say to you who hear, those who have ears to hear, listen. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. (coughs) And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the son of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, I want you to know, I'm going to look at a number of things here very quickly, but one of the things I want you to notice here, at the very end of this, Jesus says, therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Do you know how he says that in Matthew? Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, I think that if we are trying to understand what does he mean by perfection, and I think it's something more than maturity. Uh, I know people say, well, what he's really talking about there, and when he's talking about perfection, is not sinless perfection, it's, it's maturity. Uh, be ye mature, even as God is mature. Somehow that doesn't work. <laughs> There's something more meant here. Luke, I think, gives us a hint, gives us a sense of what it's talking about. Be ye merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. We all need mercy. We need it from God. We need it from each other. Okay? But Jesus here talks about how to respond to insults, how to respond to cursing, how to respond to people taking advantage of you uh, materially, uh, economically, and so on. And the thing that I want you to notice is that you can go back into the Old Covenant and you can, say, you can look at things where it says, you know, basically it's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a nice one. Jesus talks about that. He, he underscores that. And the, in the law, there's this thing, you know, if your enemies, if your enemies um, uh, donkey falls in a ditch, you know, it really, you should really pull the donkey out of the ditch. <coughs> 
which is good. Okay, that's good. But notice here what Jesus says. You're supposed to love your enemy. To go back to that wonderful King James word, peradventure, you know, you might die for a good man, but would you give your life for an evil man, for somebody who's your enemy, someone who has done you wrong? That's what Jesus did. And Jesus is calling us to love our enemies. Now, the third um, point, Christ's subjection to the principalities and powers. And I'm going to do this very quickly. How much time do I have here? Nobody told me how much time I have which is a very dangerous thing to do. Okay, right, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, it's very dangerous. <laughs> All right. Okay, my third point is uh, Christ's subjection of the principalities and powers. And I have somewhat hinted at that already, but um, one of the th- when we talk, what are we talking about when we talk about the po- principalities and powers? Do you read over that and think, what is he talking about? I often have thought, as I read, what is he talking about there? And there are different explanations given. I think essentially, I, I think essentially what it is, it's, it's the spiritual forces. It's the spiritual beings. Those who have, have leadership, who have power, uh, who, who have, uh, 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 that they weld, and I think primarily what he is referring to is all the heavenly hosts, all the angels that God created beforehand. Not entirely, not exclusively, but I think that, that uh, primarily that is what he's talking about. And it's important to note that God created the principalities and powers. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, they're in heaven and they're on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. That's how it was in the beginning. Okay, but we know that something else happened after that. We know that Satan and... Yeah, I don't actually know this is in the Bible. Uh, it's in Milton. Is that as good? Uh, uh, but, no? Don't think it's good? Don't think so? Okay, well. Um, have you read Paradise Lost? Oh, that is so wonderful. Oh, that's great. How many was that again? Oh. I don't know, are you giving any grades this week for this thing? If they did, those guys got an A. Anybody has already read Milton's Paradise Lost. But, you know, there you have a third of the host of heaven rebelling against God. All right? And uh, we do know that there was a host that rebelled against God. And we know the leader of that host tempted our first mother. And that through that, all sin and woe came into the world. Some of the principalities and powers rebelled against God. And once man sinned, they came under the power and control of those principalities and powers. But Paul tells us in chapter uh, 6 of Ephesians, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand and stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Christ defeated these powers and principalities that we have. We are not doing this on our own. We're able to fight against them. We're able to put on the whole thing because it says in the power of his might, in the power of God's might. <clears throat> Christianity and Judaism is not Manichaean. It's not Zoroastrianism. We do not have God, the good power on one side, and, and Satan, the bad power on the other side, and they're fighting this thing out. And we're going to see how it's all going to turn out. <coughs> God was going to win, and he has won. Okay, And the thing that Satan did not know and probably could not comprehend is that he was going to do it by sending his son into the world to shed his blood and ransom us from Satan's power and making it possible for us to live in right relationship with him and with each other. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says, For although we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for putting down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when, disobedience, when your obedience is fulfilled. And then he talks about the church in Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The picture we have here is of God's people, his community, his ecclesia, the assembly that he has called out out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God, the multiform wisdom of God, making known to the principalities and powers by its very existence, by its very character, and so on, that they have lost the battle. And God has gained the victory. And we can, we can, <coughs> can um, participate in that. For as Colossians 2 says, he has disarmed the principalities and powers. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. That brings me to my final point. Uh, Christ's perfection, the Swiss brethren recovery of peace. After the first centuries, in which there is fairly... Um, overwhelming them, not necessarily, uh, I would say uniform, but not necessarily ex uh, exclusive evidence that, that the early church abhorred violence, it abhorred war, it did not want its, its uh, people to be part of, of it, did not want them to be soldiers, did not want them to participate in emphasize in abortion, and any kind of other killing, that we have what we call the Constantinian fall. Now, it's very complicated. It didn't happen in a day. 
or a week or a month, year, a decade or so on. It took some time to happen. But by this thing, the, the, the character and the, of the church was changed. One could argue that maybe the church apostatized and it ceased to become the church. <coughs> there may be people who disagree with that. But um, I think that we do see in the medieval period the idea of nonviolence being fleshed out in the monastic orders who were not to take up arms in the priesthood and also in the councils of perfection and also even in the penitential system that the Catholic Church had when it came to dealing with things like for soldiers and so on. It was, not, I'm not sure how long this extended, but for many centuries, persons who shed blood had to go through particular uh, special long-enduring penitences to kind of deal with those, that issue. But in the 16th century, we have the recovery of peace as being central to, the, to, the, to what Jesus did and what he expects us to do with the Swiss brethren in the 16th century. And I framed this around a phrase in the 1527 Schleinheim Confession where it talks about the perfection of Christ. Again, picking up with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect, even therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. How did he define this perfection? Well, one of the things it did is it drew this very sharp demarcation between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, between the church and between the world, and the characteristics that each had. There are two, <coughs> two of the there are two of the seven articles in the Schleitheim. Uh, that uh, brotherly agreement that deals specifically with this question. The one is on separation, separation from evil. And the very clear message there is that as Christians, we cannot participate in evil. And one of the things that it lists is that we cannot participate in the diabolical weapons of warfare. We can't do it. As Christians, we can't do it. <clears throat> and so rooted in, and this is, this is where, um, I, I mean, this, is, this whole idea of what distinguishes us from other Christians is non-resistance and separation. There's an element of truth to that because that really was, that's the point where it comes, separation from the world. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, tomorrow when we look at the examples of Isaac Baer, a Mennonite CEO, and uh, Maurice Hess, a German Baptist CEO, the connection that they made between separation and non-resistance. But the third, I mean, the second place that occurs is on the article on the sword. And here again, it talks about that there are two kingdoms. There are this kingdom of the world. There's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world uses violence. It uses force. Uh, sometimes it uses, and we'll talk a little bit about that on, on Sunday, um, it uses uh, to restrain evil, but ultimately those weapons are diabolical. And that's a tension we're going to look at a little bit on, on uh, Sunday. How can, um, how can governments be ministers of God, but yet nonetheless... Um, be part of this diabolical world that is uh, of evil. Um, 
but uh, they're very clear, uh, the Schleiheim is very clear, that within the perfection of Christ, the only thing we could do to deal with evil was to admonish, and if repentance was not demonstrated, is to put them outside the community. And, but, uh, and goes on to talk about how a Christian cannot be a magistrate, a Christian cannot uh, participate in war, cannot be in, 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 um, do anything that uses any kind of violence. And this was, this was unheard of, and not all Anabaptists necessarily held to this two-kingdom theology and with its, with its emphasis on separation and the fact that the sword is regulated to outside the perfection of Christ. So that's why I refer to it as a recovery because <clears throat> they weren't just simply tacking it on to, some, to a Lutheran or a Reformed or a Catholic framework. It's all part and parcel of what they understood the kingdom of God to be about and what Jesus had done for them. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.